Welcome to Radical Simple Living Podcast and it's episode 19 of series 1. And um, yeah, I'm sitting here in a normal place in my kitchen with a fire crackling in the background with all the cats indoors. They never like to go out when I'm recording. And uh, it's seemed there's those springers coming here to southern Sweden in a couple of times over the past week, but today we've got fresh snowfall. The snow is falling outside, not very heavily, but it is just to remind us that we're not out of the woods yet. I'm never out of the woods because I live in them, of course. Now, the topic of today's uh, podcast is about eating. It's not about growing food. It's not about buying food. It's not about cooking food. It's about eating food. And you might wonder why, uh, with things in the world being so difficult, sitting down and making a podcast about eating food has any relevance at all. Uh, And you'd be right to wonder those things. But in my defence, I will say that eating food is incredibly important what you eat and how you eat. Now today we're not going to be talking about what you eat. In many cases it's up to you what you eat. But it's going to be how you eat, the process of eating. Whether you're eating on your own or whether you're eating with your family or whether you're eating with a wider group of people, eating is important and the process of eating is important and the procedures for eating are important. Well, why should that be the case? Well, uh, firstly, there's the obvious one that we all need to eat. And if we do need to eat, should we make that into something special? Or should we just let it be part of everyday modern life? We rush around and we throw food in our mouths and we carry on rushing around. Or should it be, bearing in mind that one of our aims is to reduce the complexity of life, And another one of our aims is to use simplicity to gain some kind of spiritual insight, whatever that means to us as individuals. I'm not pushing any particular path there. Then you realise that eating is important for both of those things. But there's a further reason. And this is a physiological reason. That you will know that there are two neurotransmitters that have a big effect on your mood and some would say have a big effect on your personality. Uh, Very simplistic views of these uh, two neurotransmitters says, well, if you've got one, you're going to be like this, and if you've got the other, you're going to be like that. The real um, reason for their importance is the balance between them. That it's not having too much of one or too much of the other, it's having just the right balance of both of them. And one of those is serotonin, And the other one is dopamine. Now, serotonin is obviously the thing that for years has been looked at in terms of depression. And it's been thought that people who are depressed have low serotonin levels. And most pharmaceutical interventions... Sorry, that was a cat being somewhere they shouldn't. Most pharmaceutical interventions involve either trying to boost the amount of serotonin... Uh, in your body or to stop the serotonin being uptake the uptake of serotonin so you have serotonin uptake inhibitors without getting too technical the idea is that the more serotonin you have in your brain the happier you're going to be 
That's a vast oversimplification, um, but there we go. The other neurotransmitter that's important is dopamine, and dopamine is the stuff that spurs us on. It makes us excited about things. It drives us. It pushes us to do all sorts of things. And dopamine is often associated with things that give us pleasure. And therefore, things like a lot of drugs, illicit drugs, street drugs, whatever you like to call them, um, psychoactive drugs, work by increasing dopamine levels. Caffeine, nicotine, both do the same thing. They give you your, one way or another, they give your body a boost of dopamine and that makes you feel able to get on with what you're doing with renewed vigour. Now, having said, what's all this got to do with food? Well, I'm coming to that. Um, you might think that because these neurotransmitters have such a big effect on our mood and on our behaviour, that you'd find vast amounts of them slapping around in your brain. But you would be wrong. The site where most of these neurotransmitters are situated is in your gut. They are incredibly linked to the digestion of food. And if you want to get the right balance of neurotransmitters, so your mood isn't always swaying one way or another, if you want to see what you can do without the intervention of pharmaceuticals to make your life happier and to make you more contented and at the same time giving yourself enough drive to do things, the best place to start is by looking at your gut and how you treat your gut and how your gut works for you. Now here's a thought experiment. You can turn it into a real experiment if you like. What is going to make you most content in an afternoon? Would it be when you were so rushed and busy that you grab lunch and you can't even remember what you're eating? You just sort of grab something quickly and threw it down your throat as fast as time possible, downed a cup of coffee or something, and then there's another cat misbehaving. No, it's the same cat. Excuse me one minute. Forgive me. Um, sometimes we have to do that. Sometimes we have to eat a meal in a hurry. But if you suddenly notice that your life is almost every meal being taken in a hurry, something's gone wrong. Now consider your same afternoon if you sat down and had a lunch with a chat with a friend, or you sat down and read a book or listened to an audio book, or did some knitting or something like that, and ate a meal that was fairly nice and fairly uh, easy to digest, is that going to make you better in the afternoon? Are you going to perform better in the afternoon? Well, whether that is a thought experiment or whether it's a real experiment you want to try, I think you'll agree the answer is that the latter is probably going to be best for you. And if we're going to apply that to lunch, we can apply it to all kinds of other meals at all. Now, a lot of you will have to eat while you're working regularly, but the main thrust of this podcast is about how you eat when you're at home. And how you eat when you either live on your own or you live with your partner or you live in a family or you live in a community, whichever of those is true for you, there's a lot you can do to make that process a lot better. Now, the first thing I'm going to say will be a little bit controversial in some circles because I'm going to suggest that the very basic thing you need to ensure that you eat better 
and that mealtimes for you become a relaxing, pleasant experience is that you have a table. Now, once upon a time, that would have gone without saying. Once upon a time, the basic requirements for anybody in whatever home they had, however humble or luxurious, the basics will consist of a bed, a table and a chair. Henry Theroux had that in his house at Built Alden Pond. He had a bed, he had a table, he had a chair. Now, over the years, some people have got away from this and they think you can eat quite happily on a sofa or you can sit quite happily on the floor and eat. Well, maybe there's a cultural reason why that will be so. And I don't want to introduce a sort of Eurocentric view to what eating is all about. But for me... Eating on a sofa is not a good idea. For me, not because I'm a messy eater, although I, I have my moments, for me, eating at a table is important. Even if I'm eating on my own, I eat at a table. Now, what sort of table can that be? Well, it doesn't matter. If you're short of space, it could be a folding table. It could be a campsite table. If you're short of money, it can be a, a decorator's trellis table. If you're... Lucky, it's going to be a solid wood table, like the one I just knocked then and sent the microphone wobbly. Um, but either way, you're going to have a table. And if you are going to have a table, you're going to have to have chairs. Now, uh, have as many chairs as you need for the people in your family. And the size of your table will depend on the number of people in your family. But it should be possible for everyone in your family to sit around the table at the same time and eat. And then what do you put on the table? before the food comes along. Well, you need to set table. Now, a setting table is important. You don't want to move up your table and move all the junk out of the way with one arm while putting your plate down with the other and eat. It's important that you clear the table. It's important that the table is looking nice. It's important maybe it's got a tablecloth on or maybe it's got uh, placemats or maybe it's a nice just rustic wooden table with um, what you need, cutlery, uh, cruet, uh, something to make the table fine, and you need some you need some crockery on it. Now, that doesn't have to be expensive crockery. It doesn't have to be matching crockery. In fact, it's never matching in my house. It doesn't matter. What it has got to be is nice cutlery that you enjoy eating from, and that's going to be real uh, crockery with real metal cutlery. It's not going to be plastic. It's not going to be anything else. It's going to be the real thing. If you think you can't afford these things, you can get them second-hand quite easily. Cutlery, crockery, fine. You need to have glass to drink water or whatever you choose to drink with your meal in it. And you need to have a way that people can serve themselves with more water. So you need to have a water jug in the middle of the table uh, or a water bottle. If you drink bottled water, it doesn't matter much, but it's got to be so people can relax and give themselves as much water as they can. You don't want to be getting up from your meal every five minutes to get something else. So make sure that a properly set table has got all the crockery and cutlery and cruets and water and glasses that you need for your meal there when you start. Now, your room should be free of distractions. Now, I'm going to talk about television and music and all those things a little bit later on. But at the moment, by distractions, I mean if you have a washing machine, don't run it so that it's on when people are sitting in the kitchen. 
I know in a lot of homes the washing machine is in a utility room or a scullery or a, a basement even. But if you have your washing machine in your kitchen, make sure it's not on when you're sitting down to eat. Make sure that clothes dryers, dishwashers, all those noisy bits of electric equipment aren't going to stop you eating and enjoying your meal properly. It's very important that you clear the decks and make sure this is right. I would go as far to say it's as important. Can you hear that cat jumping around in the background? I don't know what's the matter with him. Perhaps his dopamine and serotonin levels are confused. I don't know. Um, make sure that setting the table is as important as the food you put on the table. Having everything looking nice is fine. Make sure the lighting is good. Now we know in these times of very high electricity prices that you might be considering low lighting. Well do it. You know if you want a candle at supper it doesn't matter what room you're eating in. Um, a candle on the table will make it a better experience. In my house because we're in southern Sweden the children often come down in the morning to a candlelit breakfast and that's wonderful. The fire in the background, the candles on the table, they eat their breakfast, give them a nice meal to start the day. Um, certainly you don't want to sit down with big glaring overhead lights on your table. See what you can do, see what you can manage, experiment a little bit. Um, at my house, when it's dark, ever since the children were little, we have Amish suppers sometimes. When we turn off all the electricity and just eat by artificial light. And very good it is too. So think about those things. Remember, the food is important, but everything else is as important. Now, some of you will be eating in your kitchen. Some of you may be eating in a dining room. Some may be eating in a living room. Some may be eating in the garden, as often as you can if you have a garden or on your balcony. That really doesn't matter. The important thing is you sit down to eat, you set a place and everything is ready to present the food properly. If you like, um, the table setting is like putting a frame around a painting. When you see a painting that has got a frame on, it's a good painting. Put a frame round it and hang it on a wall and all of a sudden it takes on a whole different meaning. Your focus, the frame, draws your attention into the picture and helps you appreciate it more. Whatever food you're serving, having a properly set table, having the lighting right, having a sense of calm is going to help you enjoy whatever food you have much, much more. Now... Everybody around that table needs to enjoy their food and eat. And that can't happen if you've brought issues and arguments to the table. If you have teenagers in your house and it's time for supper and they come into supper and they've got an issue between them, some matter of inconsequence to you, but to them at that moment, it's incredibly important and they're carrying on. They might be talking about it. They might be arguing about it. They might be seething about it, about something that's gone on or something that's happened they don't agree with. That's not good. That's not going to help you or anyone else um, enjoy the meal. If you're a couple and you may be having a in-depth, deep 
discussion about something not particularly happy, you can't bring that to the table either. You can't bring an argument to the table because it will stop people enjoying their food. You know, some people, when they get agitated and upset, eat more. And some people, when they get agitated and upset, eat less. When I get agitated and upset, I can't eat at all. I can't even swallow. It's that cat again. Excuse me. Right, whatever was bugging that cat, he's decided to take it outside, which is probably a good idea, I think. Um, where were we? Yeah, we were talking about not bringing arguments to the table. You can't do that. You've got to say, right, even if there's something terrible happening, even if there's lots to discuss, even if there's something to argue about, even if your children are arguing, even if there's incredible world events, don't bring them to the table. Now that goes with discussion at the table too. Obviously, if something really exciting has happened, if the Martians have landed or something like that, or they've decided to give everybody free money or some incredibly world shattering event, people are going to want to talk about it. If it's just what's happening in the world, it's probably best to keep the discussion at the table away from areas of controversy. Now, if everybody around the table is of a like mind, that's no problem. But if there are differing opinions, it does make life difficult, not only for the people that then get involved in a heated discussion, but for people who have to sit and listen to that. Those kind of things should not be at the meal table. And I've got a couple of ideas about how to avoid them. And the first one is what you do when you sit down at the table. Now, if you come from a religious group, you probably have some kind of grace at the beginning of the meal. You don't have to, but if you do come from a religious background and you don't have grace, you might want to consider it. Um, that can take any form, <coughs> excuse me, depending on your faith. And remember, uh, your faith is your decision. I'm not pushing anybody in any particular direction. But if you come from a, a Islamic uh, tradition or Jewish or Sikh or Christian or, or whatever, you will want time at the beginning of the meal to do whatever happens in your tradition and whatever happens in your family. My family is from a Quaker tradition and we do silent grace, which all it means is we sit down for silence at the beginning of the meal. Now, silence is good, I think, because if you have people of different faiths around the table, or if you have different, if you have a mixture of pagans and atheists and Catholics and Muslims all sitting around your table at once, silence sort of works for all of them. I've even known atheists that do silent grace, and it's not a problem. They wouldn't call it silent grace. They just call it a moment of quiet before the meal starts. And what that does is it calms everybody down a little bit. Do you remember when you were at primary school and you used to come in from the playground and you'd be crazy you'd be running around all sorts of things warfare had been breaking out at a, a break time and you come in the classroom and your teacher might have had some ritual to get you to come in you might have had to line up and come in and stand behind your chairs and then sit down well what you're teaching you at the time there's nothing significant about coming in and sitting down or lining up it's a ritual and what the ritual does is draws a boundary between what was happening at break time and what's going to happen now in the classroom. 
And having a moment of silence or a spoken grace, whatever, whatever you decide to do in your family, at the beginning of a meal, um, just breaks the, uh, forms a boundary between what was happening before the meal and the meal itself. It calms everybody down. It gives them a second or two to adjust to the new situation. Now, if you don't come from a faith background, you could, you know, get different members of the family to say something or read something or just do anything. Or you can sit in silence or you can just sit and wait till somebody decides that they're going to start. You know, normally the person that cooks the meal is the person that starts the meal in, in, in uh, certainly in the tradition of Northern Europe. That's how it works. So if you cook the meal and you got it on the table, you're the one who decides when everyone starts to eat. You should never have a situation where some people have already started eating and other people around the table are not ready yet because that's not introducing that calm feel you want with a meal. So make sure everything is on the table, make sure everybody's happy and has what they need and then you all start the meal together. And more about that in a moment. How do you serve up food in your house? Well, simple living isn't about making everybody the same. Simple living is about allowing for individual differences. And most families now, or most groups of people that eat together, will have a range of different things. Now, you, you may be different religions. There may be somebody that has kosher food. There may be somebody who has um, halal food. All of these things can happen. There may be people that have certain dietary requirements. You may have people that are eating a gluten-free diet. You may have people that have uh, food allergies or food intolerances that can't eat uh, uh, dairy, for instance, or, or can't eat nuts. Uh, you may have people who are vegetarian. You may have people that are vegan. You may have people which is very strong dislikes to certain kinds of food. Now, how do you cope with all those people and how do you ensure that the meal doesn't turn into a nagging session about somebody eating something and somebody not eating something else? You haven't had enough vegetables on your plate. There's nothing wrong with saying that to somebody, especially if it's a younger child that needs a bit of guidance. But you certainly don't want to start an argument at the meal table. Well, there are two ways of serving food at a table. One is to give everybody a plated meal. And some meals just lend themselves to that. You know, in my house, we occasionally have meals which have to be plated up and given to somebody. And that's fine. But it's not the best way to do it. The best way to do it is to introduce a method of free eating. Now, free eating means that you try and think of what everybody likes and dish up the food in bowls and they serve themselves at the meal table. Now I realise that might take up a bit of space and I realise that might be a, a little bit tricky if you've got very small conditions. But what it does, it enables people to eat what they want. And if they're eating what they want, people can avoid things they don't like. And you won't face that problem of having loads of scraps of food left on people's plates, which just go to waste. Um, if you've got chickens or something, that might not be a problem. But if you haven't got chickens, if there's food that's on plates that is getting thrown away at the end of the meal, that is 
wasteful. It's wasteful of food, it's wasteful of money, and it's wasteful of the time of the person that had to earn the money in the first place. So if you're bringing home your salary, taking it to a supermarket, buying food with it, why would you want to throw that food away at the end of the meal? If you start serving up on separate plates, what people do is they choose what they want to eat themselves. Now, uh, you've got to be careful there because <laughs> you don't want somebody eating all the, you know, the item that's supposed to be the focus of the meal. What you want is people to eat lots of different things. So uh, do it rationally. Bear in mind that the older your children get, the easier this system will be to work. But free eating generally is good because it allows people to A, eat what they want, B, avoid what they don't want, and C, it saves waste because if you've got um, if you've got a bowl full of pasta and there's pasta left in the bowl you can use that pasta again it can be a pasta bake or it can be part of a pasta salad or something else the next day but if you've dished it up on everybody's plate it's just mixed up with all sorts of other things and it's only fit for the chickens or the scrap bin so do think very carefully about that and about how you serve food Certainly in, in North America, it's more common free eating than in many parts of Europe where food is traditionally plated up. But the whole idea of simple living is you can steal ideas from wherever they work. And uh, I've certainly uh, gone more and more over to free eating over the years, and it's worked very well with my family. I think that um, leftovers are easy to cope with and easy to use and wasted food is wasted food. It's as simple as that. So basically people have a plate in front of them and when the meal starts they start dishing up onto their plate. Now I am of the opinion that everything can go on one plate. You know if you say oh you've got to have a salad plate and then a bread plate and then a plate for the main course and a plate for you know just have a plate and pile food on it. It's probably the best way. You can get used to that. I think if you are interested in how people eat Try and find on YouTube a picture of an Amish family eating. Uh, for two reasons. One, because free eating is what the Amish do. And two, uh, because the families are fairly large. You can see how this works. Everyone's sitting around a table. There are plates. There are steaming pots of food. There are pickles. There's bread. There's Everything's on the table and people are eating what they want. And you'll notice that the... Amish man who has been working in the field all day can eat a vast amount of food and will finish up what other people don't want. Whereas, you know, the picky child will be able to avoid eating what they don't want. And it's good. So do consider that. And try it and experiment. Now, should you do this every meal? Well, I think you should be working towards it. I think I've said in an earlier podcast that People going into a room and taking away food and eating it is high on energy, it's high on mess, and it's high on waste. Sitting around a table together and eating a meal is probably the cheapest, most satisfactory way of eating. And if you are enjoying the process, and if everyone around the table is enjoying the process, then it's good. Now, can you have other things while you're eating? Can you have music? Can you have an audiobook playing? Can you have a movie? Well, it's up to you, really. 
I think if you have the kind of, of family where discussions work and it's good, you can you can eat and just talk. And certainly you should have some meals a week like that. If you want to listen to something or watch something, I think that's okay. But the best way to do this is to de- for the person cooking the meal to decide, or maybe the person setting the table, if that's a younger child, to decide what goes on at the meal time. So audio books are all over the place and many of them are free at the moment and podcasts are free. You might decide that there's something everybody wants to listen to. Now, when I say everybody, if there's more than three of you, that gets difficult. Three people can decide what they want to listen to or maybe want to watch. Four people, it's problems. Now, decide what you want to watch or what you listen to before you sit down, if you do, that is, and then have it ready, have it lined up. Don't spend your meal with the television on channel skipping. Don't watch necessarily what's happening uh, today uh, in the war zone or don't look at the bad news. Uh, Just try and and do something more enlightening. You can work through an awful lot of the world's classics, classic books, classic films with your family. Things, you know, it's an educative process as well. Um, When the children were very young, and used to eat earlier than the grown-ups. They'd have a, a sort of supper a very early time. I used to read to them. I used to get the thing and they work through all the classics, all the C.S. Lewis and um, E. Nesbitt and all the borrower books and classic fairy tales, all those kind of things. I used to read to the children at mealtime. I got I, hundreds of books I got through with my children and that was good. And, you know, they remember them. So that's worth thinking about too. Can you read yourself? Well, if you're sitting on your own, reading's pretty good while you eat. If there's two of you, you say, shall we eat this, read this meal? And yes, you can both read. If there's 10 of you around the table, unless it's been a pre-arranged sort of reading meal, it's a little bit difficult to organise and keep everybody happy, I would have thought. Now, um, take care of the lighting in the meal. If it's an evening meal, get the lighting low. The kitchen, when you're busy cooking, should have lights and busyness and steam and noise and all sorts of things happening. When you finish cooking, the the transition from a cooking room to an eating room should be as, as big as you can make it. The noise stops, the clutter stops, the chaos stops, the big lights are turned out and some subdued form of lighting to take place. Uh, candles, a small lampstand, whatever. People should be able to see what they're eating, but it should be calming. And if you're eating outside, yeah, you normally don't have to worry about lighting, but if you're eating outside and it's dark, find A, some way to keep the mosquitoes at bay, and B, some way of uh, enjoying your food properly and being able to see what you're eating in the dark. Okay, now I was talking earlier about um, borrowing ideas. And if you are, if you are yourself from a Jewish family or you know Jewish families you will know what a wonderful thing Shabbat is. Shabbat is where everybody gets together at the end of the week on a Friday evening and sit down to a meal which is wonderful with the rest of the family and it's the most important meal of the week. Everybody sits down to it together. It has its traditions, it has its rituals but above all it's the togetherness that is important. Now, there is absolutely no reason why you shouldn't have a Shabbat-like meal. Um, You don't have to call it Shabbat. It doesn't have to be on a Friday night. You can have it, but try and have one meal a week 
which is very special. And if that means in times of hardship, uh, this isn't a topical uh, podcast at all, but this week we've had um, in Europe all sorts of problems with people talking about fresh vegetables being in short supply because the heated greenhouses are just uneconomical to use. So farmers haven't been planting them and now we've got problems. Well, um, okay, that, that is an issue, but, but that aside, it's always possible to have some nice food put aside. And if you can't buy tomatoes, well, save those tomatoes for Shabbat or your special meal of the week, whenever that is. Try and arrange it at a time when most of your family are present. You know, if it means cooking something special, cook something special for Shabbat. The idea of Shabbat, obviously, is that you shouldn't be working, so a lot of the meal might be cold, but there's nothing wrong with something you cook beforehand. Now, you, for some people, that might be Sunday lunchtime, the best time to have that kind of meal. For other people, it might be one week when, one day in the week when there's time to cook it and when there's time to eat it. Do consider it. It's certainly something I've done for many years in, in, in the home here. And Shabbat is, we're not Jewish, we're Quaker, but Shabbat wasn't always Jewish. If you read um, all sorts of books about Celts, the Celts had Shabbat. People living in Ireland and Scotland had it right up until the 14th century. It was a common part of everyday life because they, they drew it from the Bible, obviously. So consider introducing that into your weekly list of things to do. Okay, um, do stay in touch with what's happening on these podcasts. Do like, subscribe, leave comments, do all of those things. And above all, do start to experiment with how you make the process of eating in your home calmer, more satisfying, better and adaptable so that every member of the family, every member of the people that you eat with can feel relaxed about the process of sitting down to eat. It's not always easy, but the rewards are immense. Thank you for joining me. I'm sorry about the cat interruptions. I shall have words with him afterwards. Catch you next time.